0: You ever wonder what would happen if uh, that, if God listened, we sing, show us your glory. What would happen if the glory of God descended on us? We pray that every day. We pray that, that that would happen. That way I could sit down and we could just bask in it because that would actually be enough. If God showed up and his presence was so thick and we recognized that he was here, that's the purpose of coming, Right. And I think it's worth mentioning today as we sit in church in light of everything that God is still in heaven, that he still resides on the throne as the king of all, and that his power has not been diminished, his grace has not gone away, and his purpose still remains for us on this planet. Amen. As we start this new uh, series in the book of Nehemiah, uh, it's extra timely, in fact, the study of Nehemiah and what took place. We'll get into a little bit of the background and overview there. My hope is that as we study this book in the Old Testament, that's everything before Matthew. Just in case, you know, that's a good church joke right there. I'm making sure y'all wake up. I mean, I know it's dreary and cold and wet outside, but we are in church after all. Okay, there's three of us in the room, and all of you online. <laughs> online are whooping and hollering, I can tell. And my hope is that as we spend this time, we'll understand how timely it is, not just for the day, but for us today, right? That we learn how to live our lives differently based on what we study, even in the Old Testament. And so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, my first, the first time that I recognized as a Christian that things weren't all as they seemed to be, and that I was introduced to something I didn't understand. Uh, I was a young youth pastor in uh, Maui, and we were at this conference, and uh, IJM, International Justice Mission, was speaking. And I became aware of the terrible atrocities that happen every single day to people across the world. And I came to understand that the modern day slavery problem was something that was overwhelming to me. And I remember sitting as a young youth pastor, like it stirred something in me. And it was a mix of like anger and frustration, hurt, bitterness. um, And and just this overwhelming sense of like, I don't know what to do, but I'm going to do something. And so as a young youth pastor, I devised a plan on the spot. This is really what happened. I'm just going to tell you. I sat in the chair, and inwardly, quietly, I began to put names on a list of people that I could put together as a small army, and we were going to go take care of business. (laughs) That's how I felt in the moment. I was dead serious. And then this is what the guy says, and if you're a young youth pastor in the room, and I was like, can he read my mind? (laughs) Apparently, he'd had this and seen this before. He said, if you're planning on getting a small army of your youth and friends together to go and, you know, shoot them up, basically, it's not going to fix it. And I was like, well, dang it. And I started to realize that was this moment, though. So what I had to do is I had to dial it back a little bit and figure out what to do, because I knew that I wasn't going to do nothing. I knew that God had stirred up in me this passion this need to be involved in fixing something that was broken. A lot of you have the same passions of a lot of different things. Some of you have a passion for uh, the racial tension in our country. You have passion for the abortion issue. You have passion for broken families. You have passion for the modern slavery problem. You have a passion for fill in the blanks. And they're good And you feel that stirring, don't you? Have you ever had something that you've lamented over? Have you ever had something that came up that you were like, I've got to do something right now, and you devise a plan in that moment? The problem is if we execute in the moment, in general, it doesn't always honor God, and it doesn't always fit into the grand scheme that he desires. What I had to do in that moment was go back and pray and ask God what in the world he wanted me to do so that we could make some lasting change. And so we took on the very slow, arduous process of trying to bring some change where we were, how we could. And I don't know how you sit today. <clears throat> Have you ever gotten that news, been confronted by something? Where it stirred in you that anger and frustration, the, this overwhelming sense of need, but you didn't know what to do about it? Maybe the the headlines get you. Maybe the things that you see broken around you get you. Maybe you grew up in Houston and you sit and lament over the city that you were born in and wonder how it got here. Maybe you look at the world and our nation and say, God, how did it get here? And you're stirred up. And we have a tendency to want to act right now, don't we? We have a tendency to respond in a reactive way. The good news is you're not the only one. But how we deal with the lament and how we deal with those things that stir us matter. The response matters. As we study the book of Nehemiah, we're going to look, especially in the first chapter, Nehemiah's response to this stirring that happened inside him. It's on page 400. In my Bible, if you want to turn there. But we'll be in Nehemiah 1. And we'll take the first 11 verses, which is the whole chapter. Uh, But I want to give you a little background and context. And as we study, I want you to ask yourself this. How do I respond to the things that get stirred up in me? How do I respond to the things that make me angry or that feel overwhelming? How do I respond to the deep need that I see around me in my family, in my city, in the nation, in the world? As we study, those are the questions I want you to wrestle with as we go through this. Nehemiah, as you know, in your Bible, the modern Bibles, show up in two Bibles, Ezra and then Nehemiah. But originally it was one work, one book, Ezra and Nehemiah. And it follows three parallel stories of three leaders who all had to get permission to go and do what God was stirring in them to do. They all faced opposition and then they all end the same way with terrible disappointment and a really anticlimactic ending. And it kind of leaves you wondering what in the world that was for. And we will get there. I'm just giving you the overview. I had a hard time not wanting to tell you the whole story today. Because we're just starting in one, but I'm just giving you the general overview. The first leader was Zerubbabel. And he had a stirring and a passion to go and rebuild the temple that was burned. Because this book was written after Jerusalem was burned to the ground and destroyed and all the, the Israelites were taken into captivity. You can look that up in 2 Kings 24 and 25. And what it says is, Nebuchadnezzar took all the talented folks, all the skillful folks, the craftsmen, the politicians, all the leaders, and they took him into exile to Babylon, and he left the poorest in the land to care for the land. Everybody else is exiled, the poorest are left in the land. And Jerusalem was burned, and it was just demolished. Zerubbabel had a stirring to go rebuild the temple, which they did, had some opposition. Overcame the opposition, but it ended weird. Ezra came, and he, he was a Torah scholar. He was a teacher, and so he wanted to, he reintroduced the Torah and called people to obedience and rebuilt the community. That was his stirring. That was 60 years after Zerubbabel, and then Nehemiah comes along, and he hears what has gone on in Jerusalem, and he is tasked in his soul to go rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And the reason Jerusalem is so important is this is the city that God was gonna be present with his people. This is why everybody, they remember Jerusalem, all the prophets, all the promises, God will descend and be with his people. The new Jerusalem, it will be for all people. No walls, all nations and tribes will come and God will reside there. And so this is what stirs them up about Jerusalem. This is why it was such a big deal. It's not just something they were like, oh, hey, I can build a wall, I should go do that. It was that this is the place that God was going to be with us. And we need to make it so. And he goes and experiences some opposition also. And it ends with this really terrible disappointment. The the whole book, Ezra Nehemiah, all three of these movements in the book show hope. They start with hope and they end in disappointment. All right. So with that, let's jump in, shall we? Chapter 1, verse 1 of Nehemiah. Here's what it says. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. That's a good one. Everybody had this nervous laughter last hour, but didn't really laugh. I appreciate you guys just putting it out there. In the, <laughs> Thank you. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So his brother comes, and he has this question about those who were exiled, the small group of people who God remained on the earth. If you look throughout history, God told his people, listen, if you'll just do what I tell you, if you'll just walk with me and you'll be with me and you'll obey what I tell you, everything's going to be okay. Okay? But if you disobey and you walk in your own ways, it's going to get real nasty. That's a paraphrase, of course. But God says he promised them that if they disobeyed, that they would be exiled, but he would leave a remnant because he made a promise to Abraham, right, that the nations would flourish more than all the grains on the seashore. Because of the promise, he always left a remnant, a small portion of people that he could rebuild the nation with that would walk with him in the future. So he's asking about the remnant. That's a good word said you want to work up an interesting study. The remnant is a great one. And about Jerusalem, we just talked about why that was so important. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. You know, this news that we get, these things that stir us up. You know, he he heard this about the people he cared about, a nation he cared about, and a city that he cared about. And it says they were in disgrace and despair. The place was in disarray. Things were not okay. Does it sound familiar? Things are not okay. he certainly wasn't the first person to know about it or to hear about it. But it hit Nehemiah in a way that caused him to wrestle and figure out what in the world he was supposed to do in regards to the information that he got. Here's what he goes on to say this. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. For some days is actually four months that Nehemiah, when he heard about the distress and the disgrace and the brokenness and all the failings that had happened with his nation and city, he sat down and he got on his knees and he prayed and mourned and wept for four months before he did anything else. What do you think would happen if we prayed and mourned and fasted for four months before we sent that post? Amen, Hey, let's go. Hey, you guys have a great day. What if we mourned and fasted and prayed for four months before we responded or reacted to the things that we hear or to the way that we interact with one another? or any decision for that matter. Just, I I wonder what would happen. I, I wonder how it would be if our response to the difficult things in the world started with prayer and mourning and fasting. I want you to wrestle with this question. What is it that my conviction leads me to do? What is it that you are led to do when you hear these things? And this is what he said. Then I said, oh, Lord. O oh Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Lord. This is the same Lord that when Moses said, who shall I tell them sent me? It is I am that I am. I don't have an ending, I don't have a beginning, I just am. I'm the one that created, I'm the one that takes away. In fact, it's the same God that has no boss. It's the God that doesn't submit to anybody, but rather everyone submits to. Oh Lord, he is praying to the king of the universe, the one who gave us breath and life. Oh Lord, see it matters who we're praying to, doesn't it? It matters who we're talking to. It matters who we are approaching about the things that burden our hearts. It did not say, oh, Artaxerxes, or oh, Johnny, because at the end of the day, who cares? Because it's lower than the one who he needed to go to. Oh, Lord. God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his command. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. He's praying to the Lord God of heaven and he says, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. If you're writing some things down, I wanna give you some extra scriptures because I was reminded as I was reading these. There's a theme that goes through as he's praying. This prayer is not the first time it's been prayed. If you look in Romans 8.28, this is something that's misquoted a lot, but it's important to note here. Everything works for good for those who love him and live according to his purpose. Right. So you have this in Romans 8.28. He keeps and remembers his covenant to a thousand generations. That comes from David's prayer in 1 Chronicles 6, verse, uh, 16, verses 15 and 16, and Psalm 105, 8. And then also Deuteronomy 7, 9, that God's covenant isn't just for a generation, but for all the generations. And he says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I was reminded that in 1 Thessalonians, he talks about that we should pray without ceasing. We should pray without ceasing. And we're good to do things without ceasing. We talk without ceasing. We work without ceasing. We make money without ceasing. We post without ceasing. And I know I bring this up a lot. I had some uh, friends over to our house on Tuesday night and we got to talking. They were laughing at me because I talk about phones and social media a lot. And I'll stop when it stops because we post without ceasing we go without ceasing we build without ceasing we but do we pray without ceasing both day and night when's the last time both day and night you were so burdened for something and so convicted and deeply passionate about something that it led you to your knees and that you just god God, you have to do something. Not, oh, Lord, please do this because it makes me feel better, amen. But, oh, God, what are you doing? This is what I'm lamenting about. And day and night and over and over. God, God, please show me. Please lead me. Please, you're God of heaven. You know what's going on, like day and night praying. Because this was Nehemiah's knee-jerk reaction. And I'll just have to be honest. It is not mine. I want it to be, but it's not always my Knee jerk reaction. I've found over the years that I am more reactionary than I ever wanted to be, but it's true. And I'm sorry to all of you who have to deal with that. And if you haven't dealt with it, you probably will. But Nehemiah was different. He knew that the direction he had to go first with this deep stirring was to his knees. And then he says something that I think is a struggle for not just me, but for the whole world. He says, I confess. I confess. I confess the sins that we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you have given your servant Moses. I confess. We sure like to pray for the sins of other people, though, don't we? Lord, forgive them. I'm sure they know what they do. But do you know whose fault it is that the world is the way that it is? It's mine. It's my fault. And it's your fault. We see, we live in a culture of blame, and we learn it very early in our lives. We learn it when we're little kids who broke your mother's lamp. She did. No, no, he did. No, the cat did. Yeah, yeah, the cat did it. And then we get to be teenagers and we just get better at it. No, my phone glitched. What are you talking about? I don't, I don't know how the... I don't know how your number got deleted from my phone. Well, there's only a couple ways. I, and then when we get to be adults and then it's like we forget all the lessons we were taught and we don't own anything anymore. Do you know whose fault it is that the world is falling apart, that our nation isn't working and that this city is just as it is in the Bible? It's my fault. I'm at fault for your life not working the right way. And you're at fault for the world not working the right way. And Nehemiah recognized this. He says, God, I confess my sins and the sins of our country and my father's house. I confess that we have ignored you. Do you know why we've ignored God? And that the reason we don't live in a, a Christian nation is because we ignore God because it's not convenient for us. We ignore God because it, doesn't, it means that we can't do whatever we want and get away with it. It means that we have to be submissive and humble, without pride, not selfish. And who wants to live like that? It's my fault. I confess that I have not measured up, loved the right way, submitted the right way, cared the right way, given the right way, been kind the right way, spoken the right way, acted the right way, and all the rest. It's my fault. It's my family's fault we are all to blame for being where we are, period. Nehemiah says, God, we are all to blame for where we are. Now I recognize that's not very popular. That's not gonna make it on the Twitter feed. It certainly won't make it in the news. Because why would we want to own it when we can blame somebody else. Nehemiah wasn't willing. Here's what Nehemiah did. He recognized that the brokenness had to do with the choices of the nation, and he confessed. First John 1, you guys know this one? It's worth, it's worth uh, doing. I'm sorry I didn't have it uh, noted already. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness if we confess our sins. He goes on in verse eight. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses. Now, a lot of times we do this. We remind one another for informational sake. I need a lot of reminding, so I know this happens. Hey, remember what you said. Remember what you said you were gonna do. Hey, remember that you said you'd make your bed, that you would get, you know, make sure. Remember, this is not what Nehemiah was doing to God. He wasn't telling God to remember things that God had forgotten. He was saying, God, remember what you have already promised so that we don't get blown away. Remember this covenant that you made? It was about action. He wanted God to act, not on behalf of his, um, on his deserving merit but instead on the promise of God. He was saying, God, remember this. He goes on and he says, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and even your exiled people who are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. That promise, you can find that in Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, that instruction that God gave Moses is in there. He's saying, God, I know that I don't deserve This, But would you remember your covenant? Every Sunday morning um, before I stand up here to, to teach, I pray something very specific. And I pray it because you don't come to church to hear me preach. What you come is to hear the voice of God through his scriptures by the power of the Holy Spirit, convict your spirit, give you what you need to be encouraged and to go do the work of the ministry. That's why you're actually here, whether you know it or not. That's what you should be here for. You don't come to hear any person preach. Amen. Now, here's what I pray. I say, God, because all week long, I'm basically working out my own junk. I don't know if you know this, but I'm not perfect. Just come a pastor. And I've got my own stuff I deal with, okay? So keep praying for me. And because of that failure, I'm always understanding that you are gonna get less than what you need if I stand up here and God doesn't speak. And so my prayers is God, please speak to your people, not because I deserve you to do that, but because that's what they need. That's what I pray every day before I stand up here Sunday morning. did it this morning in my office. And I don't tell you that because I'm holy or righteous in any of those things, but this is the prayer that Nehemiah prays. God, remember your covenant. Remember what you promised, not because we deserve it, but because you are faithful and good and just and righteous. And I want to see you do what you said you were going to do, even though I don't deserve you to do it. And he goes on in verse 10. He says, there are... They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. These broken people, these people who ignored you, these people who were taken into exile, who only have a remnant, these are the people you redeemed by your great power and your mighty strength. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. He was talking about our the king. He was a, Nehemiah was an official in the government, in the Persian government, and he was also cupbearer to the king. Now as a cupbearer to the king, worst job on the earth. His job was when somebody poured wine for the king, they put it in the goblet or the chow, whatever you call those things, the cup he was gonna drink from, and they took it to the king. And before the king took it, Nehemiah would take a drink, and if he was still standing, the king would take his wine and drink his wine. If he died, they would get another cupbearer and a different bottle of wine. That was his job. Now, so he was intimately acquainted. Like he, This job was a real thing. He was in, in the presence of the king a lot. And he knew that if he was going to go to the king and ask this thing that is stirring in him, he will need God's favor. For four months, he lamented and prayed and wept, asking God for permission first and for favor. Do you know how this is different from our culture? How many times have you heard this? It's better to ask for forgiveness than And now everybody's wondering if that hasn't been in the Bible, why they've been doing it. It's not in the Bible. In fact, it's quite opposite. And Nehemiah shows us this different way when we have this stirring. What I was going to do and what we generally do is that we react first and talk to God later. Or we react first asking him to hurry up and catch up and bless what we're doing instead of doing what Nehemiah, which was a lot harder and a lot slower, which was, oh God, what do you want to do? What do you want me to do, if anything? God, I want your permission to go to talk to the king because I have this stirring. Is that what you want to do? Please give me favor so that I can accomplish this task. I feel like you are calling me to. I wonder what would have happened if he'd have been like, I can't believe it's in shambles. That's it, I'm out. What if he just dug out and left? He didn't ask the king. I wonder what the story would be. That's not what the story is, though. The story is that he went and asked for permission See, there's all these things that are going to stir us up, as they should. We're built to be passionate, emotional, thriving, zealous people, especially for the gospel, for the kingdom of God. But zeal without knowledge, the Bible says, is foolishness in the end. What stirs you up? Is your heart broken over our city and nation? It should be. Are you saddened about what we have become as a nation and a city? You should be. But I wonder what your inclination has been. Have you been emotionally reacting or repentantly seeking? As these things are stirred up, have you been emotionally reacting or repentantly seeking God? It matters. Maybe your hearts are troubled at the recent events. what will your response be? Maybe you see a nation living in ignorance of God and you mourn for that. I certainly do. Maybe you see the broken families and we can't do any better than the rest of the world. Maybe you mourn for that. Maybe it's modern day slavery. Maybe it's broken systems and the tension that is present in everyday life. There's tension. uh, There's more tension present in our world than I have ever seen in my entire life in my 43 years. Is your heart stirred for that? Well, I'll tell you this, that true revival, true revival, renewal, and the rebuilding of a city and a nation must be preceded by true prayer and repentance. True renewal, revival, and the rebuilding of a city and a nation has to be preceded, has to come after true prayer and repentance. Because, is what we will find is you can rebuild all the outside, but if you don't fix the inside, it won't last. Fixing our city and nation will never happen if we don't first fix the problems of the heart. Fixing our city and nation, listen, fixing our city and our nation will never ever happen if we don't first fix the problems in our hearts. If you wanna fix your marriage because your wife is this and or your husband is that, fix yourself first, fix the inside of your heart. We could go down the line and just tick off all the things. Every single one, every single one has an outward band-aid fix and an inward actual fix. Every single one of the inward actual fixes to every single problem and issue we are facing in our country or will face in our country has to do with the problem of the heart. It has to do with the human sin problem and our inability to show Jesus in every word spoken and every action done. True revival, renewal, and the rebuilding of a city and a nation must be preceded by true prayer and repentance. See, the hope that they were looking for was uh, for a city where God would be present. And in all three of the stories that went in Ezra and Nehemiah, and none of them were accomplished. And it goes to show that if we seek God for direction and permission first, before we start the fix, we'll probably have better success than if we just run and hope God gets on board with our, our plans. What are you praying and fasting over? What are you seeking God's permission for? Are you repentantly seeking or are you being a reactive in your response to the things that stir up in your guts? He prayed for the sins of himself and his family. And I'd like to do that for a moment. If you just bow your heads. I'm gonna ask you to do something very difficult. I'm gonna ask you to not pray for anybody, but to open yourself up for God to shine a light into your own heart. And I would like to give you the opportunity to confess those things. I'm just gonna ask you to silently so you don't weird your neighbors out. But let's spend a minute Asking God to reveal those places of ignorance, arrogance, pride, selfishness, disobedience. And as they're revealed, would you just confess those to God, owning it, being specific? O Lord, God of heaven, you are the mighty and strong king of the universe. I confess, I confess my sin, my disobedience, my ignorance of you, my willingness to set you aside in order to do what I want. I confess the sins of my family and the sins of this church and the sins of our church, the, the worldwide church we as a people have not done what you want and we have a difficult time living in obedience because we want to do our own thing God we confess it is our fault that it is the way that it is and Lord if you would have mercy on us would you do a work in our time that has not been seen yet a supernatural work that is filled with your power and your goodness Father, that the the lens of the cross and the power of the resurrection would lead it on. And that because of the mercy shown at the cross and because of the power shown at the resurrection, that we might see people come to life in Jesus Christ. Not because any of us deserve it, oh God, but because you are good and you remember your covenant that you made. Oh Lord, we submit to you. As we draw our service to a close, I'm going to ask our prayer folks come forward. If you need prayer with somebody or you'd like to pray for somebody or you know somebody who's lost and you want to offer prayers up for that or you are lost and you want to know this Jesus, come on like if you would to stand to your feet. We're going to sing another song together as we finish our service in prayer together.